Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. NPR founding mother Susan Stamberg is a great admirer of the artist Lou Stovall. His work is on view at the Georgia Museum of Art now. In her piece, which aired on NPR earlier this month, Stamberg writes about how Stovall turned silkscreen printing into an experimental art form, working with artists including Jacob Lawrence and David Driscoll. Later this hour, we'll hear about the special exhibition at the Georgia Museum in Athens, Lou Stovall of Land and Origins. First, the story of a young artist's life cut short during the Nazi Holocaust, decades before Art Spiegelman's Mouse, Persepolis by Mariana Satrapi, and March by Congressman John Lewis. The first graphic novel was created in 1943 by a young German artist named Charlotte Solomon. Her life is the subject of an animated film that's screening online now as part of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. Julia Rosenberg is the producer and directed the all-star cast of voices in the film. She joins us now via Zoom. Julia, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's a great, great pleasure to be here. This film is gorgeous and heartbreaking. How did you discover the story of Charlotte Solomon? I was given a collection of, uh, of her work, the, the, the collection of the 1300 paintings called Life or Theater for my 13th birthday. And it immediately struck a chord with me, so much so that as the years went on, every time I would fall in love, I would make a present of this book to the man in question to say, this is the most important thing in the world to me. Here, you must have a copy. Oh my. So how well known is Charlotte Solomon's story and her artwork for that matter? It's not well known at all. She was the most prolific artist of the Shoah and yet no one really knows about her. Those of us that do are fiercely uh, attached to her story and her work. But I first saw the work mounted in 1998 and it occasionally does get mounted and, and, and travel, but it's shockingly poorly known. Yeah, which underscores all the more the importance of your film. Why did you want to create this film as an animated piece? The idea came to me in that form. I was out one morning and the thought came into my head that Charlotte Salomon drew her life story. So I needed to produce an animated, therefore drawn version of her story as well. And I didn't interrogate the thought. I just put my head down and 
plowed forward for 10 years until the film was finished. And you were already a filmmaker at that point. Yes, I had I'd had the good fortune of producing many wonderful live action films, but I had never worked in animation before. So what did that demand of you and the production? I mean, the end credits show dozens, if not scores of animators and an international array of them at that. What sort of coordination did that require? A tremendous amount. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, I found a wonderful partner, a woman named Christina Rotsart, who had been working in animation for decades. And so she understood the nuts and bolts of making a drawn film. And I had to find international partners to raise some of the financing as well out of France and Belgium and Canada. But the process of animation is vastly different from live action. Here's one little tidbit to give you an idea. You create storyboards for the film and then you edit the storyboards together. And it is that edited storyboard film in a way, which is called an animatic, that you lock picture on. And then you go ahead and animate it. So you edit the film before you animate the film. Hmm. And of course, you have text to go with it. Yes, uh, I did develop the screenplay for about four or five years uh, with Eric Rutherford and then with David Besmosgis, whom some of your listeners may be familiar with. He's a very celebrated novelist and a wonderful, wonderful writer. And in that regard, we developed the film much like a live action film is developed by spending years perfecting the screenplay Many animated films sort of start again when they storyboard, but that was not the case for us. We actually storyboarded the script very, very closely. The pacing in the movie is striking, and I don't know if this is because of the animation or if that was an artistic decision on your part. I welcomed how much the viewer has the opportunity to remain in an extended moment that's captured. Maybe, I don't know, being American, I'm just accustomed to a lot of action in films. And not only because this is such an intense story, it was a welcome to inhabit a slower pace, but also in order to admire the beauty of the drawing. I'm so pleased that you found the pacing took the shape of your emotional response to the film. That's really what we were aiming for. So often films are edited to accommodate notions of storytelling as, it, as, as of course it, that, that needs to be thought of as well. But we really tried to pay attention to what we thought was the emotional architecture of the film. So you could linger in Charlotte's frustration or have time to see her work. Uh, it was very much an artistic choice. That being said, it's very rare for animated films to have as many close-ups as we do. And the human face is very, very challenging to animate in terms of nuance and drama. So we spent an incredible amount of time perfecting different facial expressions through the film. That is evident. I think this is also why the music is so important in the film. The composer did a masterful job. And at times I felt like the music served the role of narrator or at least connecting the dialogue and the visuals somehow. I think the composer is an absolute genius. He is so deeply, deeply talented it was the first time I've ever had to work with a composer remotely through Zoom <laughs> because of the pandemic. So he would send us different cues and we would listen to them and discuss them over Zoom. 
I think the, the music in and of itself is, is a genuine masterwork. complements the story, supporting different moments, is of a subtlety that is rare to find, I think, in film scores. I'm so pleased it, it spoke to you. Uh, I'm incredibly appreciative of Michelino's work. It's beautiful. His name is Italian. Does he live in Italy? He's a, a Belgian man of Italian oh, origin yes. who lives uh, outside of Brussels. And my Belgian partner heard him do a, uh, a performance. I'm not sure what it was exactly. It was something symphonic. He also has a jazz trio. You know, sometimes in our work, like in our lives, we, we meet people and every time we continue working with them, we're astounded at our good fortune. And my feeling about working with Michelino was that I pinch myself for having had the opportunity to collaborate so closely with him. Oh, understandably. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is producer Julia Rosenberg. Her animated film, Charlotte, is streaming now as part of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. Let's talk about this story. Would you tell us about Charlotte's family and their life in Berlin before the Nazis rose to power? Well, Charlotte was part of an upper-middle-class Jewish family in Berlin, very assimilated. Her father was a celebrated surgeon and professor at the university, and her mother was very well-educated. And Charlotte had a sort of charmed life until her mother uh, died when Charlotte was eight years old. And then her father remarries a celebrated opera singer. Uh, Paula was known for her rendition of certain Bach cantatas, and she would travel through Germany and give recitals in churches. So they had a very charmed home when Charlotte was growing up. Uh, Einstein would come by and play, apparently, play violin. And it was a gathering place for artists and, and intellectuals. Mm. The film opens in 1933. Hitler is in power, but her family has not yet been attacked. How does Charlotte who is no stranger to tragedy, as, as you mentioned, her mother died when she was only eight. How did art, even at her young age, help her cope with understanding emotions, such as the tension with the Nazis in power? I think Charlotte created a very vibrant inner life for herself that she expressed through her artwork. And she was also living in Germany at a time that was post-expressionism. So she had lots of support in a way for that type of very personal, expressive uh, visual art, its style and sort of its aesthetics. So Charlotte was always drawing. There's the story that she went to Rome with her grandparents and visited the Sistine Chapel and knew then that what she really wanted to be when she grew up was an artist. And that's brought out so wonderfully in the film. She um, actually lies down on that marble floor, <laughs> just looking up at the ceiling and and not wanting to leave that magnificent art all around her. This brings up something I was eager to ask you about. In addition to the animation, you had to bring on creatives 
who could reproduce her art. And you mentioned the German expressionist. Her artwork looks a little bit like George Gross or any of a number of the expressionists we're familiar with in museums. How is that achieved where we actually see her paintings being recreated or created in front of our eyes on screen? Are you speaking about the the passages, the sort of transitional passages where her paintings come to life? Yes. So that was done technically through, I'm not even sure of the means, to be honest with you, but our partners in Belgium who, who had the task of those transitional moments came back to us and, and, and showed us some early tries. And then one of the directors, Tahir Rana, worked very, very closely with them on the pacing of that, which portions of the work would appear in which order. And it was a very, very magical moment when we all saw the fruit of that labor and realized how spectacular those moments in the film would be. Something interesting, of course, is that we also had to imagine some work of Charlotte's that did not survive the war. For instance, the paintings she does uh, for the memoir of her first love. As you see in the film, those don't survive. And we worked with a couple of artists in Toronto who spent a lot of time with Charlotte's work. And we went by feeling, really. We came up with work that felt to us like it could have been hers. Her work, the permanent home for her work and her collection, theater or life or theater, is in the Jewish Museum in Amsterdam. Did your artists have to travel to Amsterdam? It would have been nice, but at that point, everyone was in lockdown. So... Instead, they could look at her work both on the page, because we had several copies of, there's some beautiful renditions of life or theater that one can purchase. So we had the big art books, but one can peruse all of life or theater online at the Jewish uh, Museum's website. So we could also look at the work online, which was quite helpful because we also ended up with a digitized or digital version. So it was good to see it on a digital screen. And I did spend quite a bit of time in Amsterdam in the process of making the film, working closely with the Charlotte Salomon Foundation, who are also based in Amsterdam. The story, her life story, was not unusual for upper-middle-class German Jews who had been assimilated and who were privileged Her grandparents think the Nazis are a passing thing. Her father had an iron cross, correct? Correct. This story is very much like that of my husband's maternal grandparents, who just were such proud Germans, they never imagined anything could happen to them until it was too late. Charlotte's trajectory while still tragic, has some bright moments in the period she spends in the south of France. Would you talk about that part of her story? She left not long after Kristallnacht through the guise of a temporary visa allowing her to take care of her grandparents. Her grandparents had moved to the south of France and were given refuge in this beautiful villa in Villefranche-sur-Mer, which is just beside Nice, by this astounding American woman named Ottilie Moore. And they lived there along with a bunch of Jewish children whom Ottilie was also providing refuge for. So Charlotte joins her grandparents at the home of Ottilie in the south of France. And Ottilie is a great lover of the arts. And so Ottilie provides her with a studio, paints, paper, and Charlotte really in many ways begins to blossom despite some troubling family dynamics. And she adores the light like many other artists have in the past and can spend real time painting and and thinking about, about art. Oh, and that light comes through so 
magnificently in the animation. I mean, it felt like, boom, here we are in the south of France <laughs> before, before you even know it. I wondered about Ottilie Moore. This was a real person. The depth of her humanity was astonishing for that time especially. Do we know more about her outside of the context of this story? I believe she came from a family that made quite a bit of money in making sausages around New York City. And I don't recall how she bought this house in the south of France, but I did meet someone who remembered her. And she was a very free-spirited woman. She was the sort of woman who would run into a burning house to save people because that's just what you do. One of those very strong-minded people with a, a clear sense of, of right and wrong. She also apparently went skinny dipping every day, to, <laughs> <laughs> which scandalized the, the villagers. And I have a wonderful photograph that I, can, that I can send to you of her on the ship in New York, surrounded by the kids. Oh, so she's, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman. And apparently when she left, we opted not to do this because it was a bit challenging for animation, but she left with a donkey and a bunch of dogs in the car as well, with the idea that the people at the border would find it so annoying having to deal with that, that they would just pass her and the kids through, which I believe they did. Oh, my. Now, it was utterly whom Charlotte met in the Vatican Museum, correct? That's correct. Okay. So this stranger ultimately takes in a family, children who are displaced, this good-hearted, free-spirited American. Why aren't there more of these people? <laughs> this is yeah. a story for the ages. It, it really is. And it's a story that feels pertinent now with so many people displaced and, dis and having to live in temporary housing. You know, Charlotte was a refugee. And we're living at a, a, at a time where there, I don't remember the number, but there's an extraordinary amount of people living as refugees in the world right now. Producer Julia Rosenberg, her full-length animated film, Charlotte, is available to stream through the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival website through February 27th. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Let's get back to my conversation with producer Julia Rosenberg, inspired by a graphic novel. Her full-length animated film, Charlotte, is the true story of a young artist killed during the Holocaust. I wondered about... The cover, there's a cover you show of the actual graphic novel, Life or Theater. Does it say Zingspiel? It does. Okay, and so this was an opera or a musical play? I really encourage 
everyone to run to their local bookstore and order or through online Life for Theater, the collection. It's an astounding piece of work. Charlotte wrote lines of dialogue. She had suggestions for songs to be played. She made paintings and then did overlays on top of the paintings. She used text. What she created was such a masterpiece and so ahead of, it, uh, of its time. She thought about it as a film, as a play. We opted not to use operetta-like music for dramaturgical reasons. Um, and we really wanted to, to tell a more straightforward biopic, which I think we have. But I encourage everyone to, to really dive deeply into Charlotte's work. In many ways, we've made the film so that people would be driven to explore Charlotte Salomon's work and all of its glory. And it's important to note that over a thousand paintings, I think you said 1,300, those were done at this fever pitch before she was arrested. Yes, it's a friend of mine, the painter Margot Williamson. When she saw the film, she said it was, two things struck her. One, how much work she produced so quickly and at such a young age is an astounding amount of work. And she also thought it was the best film that captures the process of painting that she'd ever seen. The, the passion, the focus, the, the determination, the obsession. So yes, Charlotte, her, as I said earlier, her output as a refugee at wartime, is, it's, it's astounding even in the best of conditions. She entrusts these paintings to a kind French doctor. She has a moment of happiness, love with an Austrian refugee. They both end up dying in Auschwitz. I was hoping that you would talk about the casting of the actors you have who are like a who's who in British theater and film. I mean, talk about a stunning array of talent. It, uh, like with Michelino and the directors and the writers, of course, we were incredibly blessed by having some of the finest actors in the world work with us on this film. I should say that in the French version, Marion Cotillard voices Charlotte. So it goes even beyond <laughs> the original English language version. Casting begins often with the screenplay and the screenplay uh, finished by David Bezmosgis is just a wonderful, wonderful screenplay. And then we worked closely with the casting director out of London named Kate Ringzell, who had the, who brought the, the passion of the filmmakers to the actor's representation. And when Kira said yes, we were over the moon. She had never done animation before, and she chose this for her first project in animation. And most of the other actors we went to immediately said yes. We were very, very blessed, and they were so excited to, to work on this with us. Well, all the more remarkable because I read that you pointed out actors are usually willing to sign on for animation if it's comedy, but this is very different. It is, and what was important to me, having produced live-action films, many dramatic ones, I know that actors really help each other. They feed off of each other. They inspire each other. And so we were very, very lucky that on the five days we worked with Kira, we could schedule it so that she could work in the booth with others throughout. And so her scenes with her grandfather, she's in the booth with Jim and they're acting beside each other. When Jim and Brenda uh, had scenes together, they played with each other. They, they, they played the scenes together in the booth. And I think you really sense that because this is a very dramatic story with lots of big emotions. So they brought all of their work and talent and expertise uh, to the recording booth. A little funny anecdote, there's something called Walla, 
which is we, you have to realize in an animated film, everything you see in here is intentional. We choose to put it up there, including breathing in, breathing out, hellos, characters' names. And so the wallet track is having actors breathing in, breathing out, laugh, oh. and making all of these sounds that we normally make that we had to edit in to their performances. Yeah. And that was funny. I could imagine because what you're describing sounds like it could be an avant-garde music piece. <laughs> it kind of was. What, it was... Would, what would John Cage say? So Exactly. You mentioned, in addition to Keira Knightley, Jim Broadbent and Brenda Blethyn, I saw that Helen McCrory is credited. I wondered, given the time frame, was she sick when she worked for you? I think she was. I, I did a bunch of interviews with the cast on the days that they recorded uh, these EPK interviews. And I must say that my interview with Helen, looking back at it, was very, very moving. We talked about art and witnessing what survives one's death, the, the fear of dying. It, it's haunting, actually. And her understanding of what, she, of what the Charlotte was facing, the role that art plays. We talked about keepsakes and her, her having things from her grandfather. It, it, she was very moved by this story. And her performance of Paula, the stepmother, yes. could easily have been the evil stepmother stereotype. But she brought so much humanity and warmth to that role. I didn't know she was sick, and I learned of her death with everyone else as a surprise. I think she kept it secret almost to the very end of cancer, but how fortunate to work with her and to have had such a meaningful conversation as well. Yes. Julia, do you hope for more exhibitions of Charlotte Solomon's work. What is your greatest hope for the afterlife of this film? I hope that the exhibit starts to travel again in a meaningful, consistent way. My dream is that it will have a permanent exhibition in Amsterdam. And so anyone who goes to Amsterdam at any time could see the work. So that's my ultimate dream, as well as a robust touring schedule for the work again, where I would have hoped to have a few pieces mounted in New York and LA. It opens on April 22nd, uh, initially in those two cities and then expanding wider, but it, that is proving to be a, a bit tricky. We'll see. I may be able to get some nice reproductions. Oh, I, I hope you can. Like Anne Frank, her father survived. Her father and his wife survived, and you feature them on screen in documentary footage in the end. I love that the viewer gets to take away Paula's saying that Charlotte loved life very much so. I think this was in response to a question about, you know, was she plagued by the same demons of depression and suicide that plagued her family? But she loved life, and she rediscovered it time and time again. Julia Rosenberg, thank you so much for allowing us to discover Charlotte Solomon. It's my great pleasure. And as we were making the film, we all were motivated by the idea that everything we did was to honor the life and work and vivacious talent of Charlotte Solomon. So thank you for watching it so well and so closely and responding so beautifully to it. Producer Julia Rosenberg, her full-length animated film, 
Charlotte stars Kira Knightley in the title role and is streaming through the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival's website now through February 27th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear about the exhibition of works by the artist Lou Stovall on view at the Georgia Museum of Art. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. World-renowned printmaker and artist Lou Stovall has a new exhibition in his birthplace of Athens, Georgia. Lou Stovall of Land and Origins highlights the works that were inspired by his life, by nature, and poetic meditations. The show is on view through May 29th at the Georgia Museum of Art on the campus of the University of Georgia. Shania Harris is the museum's curator of African-American art. She joins us now via Zoom. Shania, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we know Lou Stovall as a master screen printer, respected and beloved by other artists. Please tell us about his life and background. As you noted earlier, Lou Stovall was born in Athens, Georgia, but his family moved to Springfield, Massachusetts when he was about four years old. So he didn't actually grow up in Athens. He grew up in um, Massachusetts. But prior to moving to the Northeast, uh, apparently uh, one tidbit of trivia that I found out uh, from the family is that his father actually worked on campus. Oh. So that kind of brings it, you know, kind of brings it full circle for us because, I mean, as you probably, you know, as most people probably figured that the university has always been the center of Athens, Georgia. And so his father actually worked on campus as a cook uh, before they the family moved to Springfield. Interesting. And I read that Lou, as a kid, maybe not even a teenager, worked in a grocery store in Massachusetts. And that's how he became enthralled with printing. Right. So... Screen printing, you know, most people associate it with, you know, with signs and posters and things in the commercial realm. So that's where Lou received his kind of his initial uh, sensibility about designing and screen printing was through working at a, a grocery store. So it just kind of demonstrates, you know, the power of, you know, those those early employ- uh, bouts of employment for people they can evolve into a full career that goes in all sorts of directions. And how a young teenager can already have the artist's eye, which was captivated by that. Why did he focus on silk screening in particular? I'm curious about what makes Stovall's screen printing technique unique. Well, Lou actually um, studied at Howard University uh, in the early 1960s. And again, he already had that exposure to some design and, you know, signage making and so forth. And while he was in school and also working at yet another silkscreen signage shop called Botkin's um, Sign Shop uh, in Silver Spring, Maryland, he also became involved with uh, designing posters for area events related to art, activism, uh, concerts, festivals, and so forth. And, you know, then he began to really refine his technique 
also he was studying with a lot of great artists at Howard University in their renowned art department, names that maybe listeners may have heard, like David Driscoll, James Wells, uh, Lois Maylou Jones, and others were still actively teaching there. And so he was able to combine a sensibility about the fine arts from studying at Howard University with the more practical uh, concerns of the time and the era where making imagery that spoke to you know, an event or a concept very quickly through the screen printing uh, process uh, was possible. But his silk screening technique, from what I understand, was extraordinary in the way that he printed did not just produce a flat appearance. Is that correct? Or is that the screen print? Right. Right. So when we think about, you know, posters and, and, you know, other, you know, like media that that would kind of correspond to, you know, you think of just kind of a flat image with lettering, you know, and, you know, maybe bright color to get your attention for the purposes of, you know, maybe purchasing something or attending or connecting with uh, something in a very quick level. One of the things that I find interesting about uh, Lou Stovall's technique is that he actually invites closer looking rather than a quick look with his work. So I was walking through the galleries as we're installing them and I remarked to one of our guards that I love his lines. I mean, he, he has a, uh, a very strong background uh, in draftsmanship. In fact, that's the foundation of his practice is drawing. And so his attention to the lines and, and composition all those skills coming from his training uh, and then combining it with the medium of screen printing is pretty remarkable. Yeah. He studied with rock star artists at Howard, and then he worked with major American artists. Who were some of those artists he collaborated with over the decades? Uh, some artists that he collaborated with included um, artist Sam Gilliam, who uh, is another longtime Washington-based artist that's finally, you know, getting his due at this point, um, historically. Jacob Kanan, Gene Davis, um, Alexander Calder, uh, Robert Mangold. And one of the more notable ones that I, in my learning about uh, Lou Stovall's importance, was uh, artist Jacob Lawrence yes. and uh, being a major figure um, in American art and among African-American artists. So there's a lot of, a lot of collaborations that he engaged in uh, that are memorable. Gwendolyn Knight, Lawrence's wife, I mean, you name it, you know, if, if it involved silkscreen, it was either he was involved in some way in the project or probably consulted because of his skill. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with curator Shania Harris about Lou Stovall of Land and Origins, on view now in Athens at the Georgia Museum of Art. Shania, reading about Lou Stovall, I got the feeling that this is a warm-hearted man who has had a happy family life and the respect of the best artists around. It, none of the tortured artist existence we, we often hear sad stories about. Can you tell us about the impact of his designs and work in the community poster print making, because you mentioned his poster work in the 60s and 70s. This, this was a hot time to be in Washington, D.C. Right. So, you know, one note that's of interest was that he was able to kind of assume a lot of uh, connections with what was going on in the art scene in particular through his friend Lloyd McNeil, 
uh, who's also a musician, who was a student also at Howard University. And if you can imagine, and I'm sure this probably was the case, you know, when you're a college student, you know, you're and you're immersed in a, a major city like Washington, D.C., you know, where there's all kinds of people coming into the district and, you know, entertainers, um, people in the political front, people in the arts front, uh, intellectuals, uh, that, you know, they pretty much had a, a rich environment in which to interact. And, you know, performances were going on, they needed media to help communicate it. Uh, Lou became pretty sought after relatively quickly for his unique designs um, in collaboration with um, individuals like McNeil uh, and others. And then artists began to see the, of course, the artistry in that medium. And also there was a revival of silk screening um, in the 60s in general. So that kind of extended in the latter decades where it became, it was an easier medium to um, be able to reproduce, to communicate artistic messages, as well as other types of messages to different audiences very quickly. And so him being immersed in that, I mean, it was a perfect storm, if you will, of events, as well as situations that allowed him to really, you know, become more refined at the technique. And you mentioned his activism earlier. Would you say his community poster printmaking in the 60s and 70s was part of that activism? Yes, I think that, you know, you couldn't help but be a part of what was happening around you, particularly in Washington, D.C. Um, everything from protest marches to, to cultural events, you know, where people were kind of redefining what it meant to be American in particular, I would argue that it was very easy for him to be a part of uh, that larger community activism through his art. Included in the exhibition are several silk screens from Stovall's 1974 series titled Of the Land. How would you describe these works? These works of which, you know, we only have a, a subset, but it, it, it's funny because my earlier encounters with Stovall's work came largely through images from that series. So before I even encountered later works or maybe even earlier works that he may have done in, you know, in terms of like community posters and so forth, I saw these images of, I call them Tondo, you know, or kind of circular images of natural landscapes in nature, trees, rivers, birds that are fluttering above a landscape scene. So it's almost like kind of a stereoscope kind of image of nature where he's able to take many of his memories from growing up in Springfield um, in particular uh, and kind of translate them to the uh, kind of a landscape medium. And there's a long tradition of, you know, amongst many artists of capturing the landscape. Uh, one that comes to mind that I immediately think of is someone like Edward Mitchell Bannister, who it's possible that Lou Stovall may have encountered his work when he briefly studied uh, at RISD in Rhode Island. Um, and also maybe even in learning about an artist like that from his time at Howard. Uh, amongst other uh, American landscape painters. And so there's a way in which, you know, he's connecting to a longer tradition of um, African-Americans capturing landscapes rather than, you know, images of, you know, social situations or kind of social realist Spain, but um, being able to kind of personalize them and make them uh, more intimate for the viewer to appreciate. They're beautiful. Georgetown University Press published a new book earlier this month. What can you tell us about Of the Land, the art and poetry of Lou Stovall? Well, actually, I'm looking forward to seeing the book myself. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're eagerly awaiting getting our first copy. Um, it's edited by his son, Will Stovall, who's a, a great writer, and it kind of it also considers uh, Stovall's poetry. He's a wonderful poet, 
And many of these images juxtapose kind of the textual written, his written imagination, uh, as well as their, I believe, his commentary about uh, the artist, kind of some biographical information, as well as um, narrative about his life and his work and process. But the poetic intentions of the artist alongside the art, I think, will be something that a lot of individuals who may have seen Stovall's work may not have been aware of him as uh, a poet as well. Curator Shania Harris, Lou Stovall of Land and Origins, is on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at UGA through May 29th. You can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In celebration of George Harrison's upcoming birth anniversary, a variety of local musicians will be performing music of the Beatles and the Traveling Wilburys at the Star Bar in Little Five Points this Saturday, February 26th. Proceeds from the show will benefit the Material World Foundation, which is the charitable organization George Harrison created in 1973. Performers playing alongside the Dark Horse Orchestra will include Kenny Howe, Slim Chance, Mary O. Harrison, Brandon Arnold, and Brian Malone. More information is available on the Star Bar's website, starbaratl.bar. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., WABE music contributor Scott Stewart stops by to help us salute composer John Williams on his 90th birthday. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.